Hey there. Welcome to the Deeper Podcast. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. The Deeper Podcast is all about how we can, together, love the hells out of this world. And we do that by living lives that unleash a little bit more courage and love in small ways. We believe that it compounds the way we treat each other, the small act we're able to take. We know that it's overwhelming in the world, and so we want to work together to figure out how collective solutions can really build hope. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. We're in the second or third of our series. No, it's the second of our series on active hope. You know, active hope is a a, a practice, a um, a worldview that comes from the work of Joanna Macy. And Joanna Macy is a Buddhist, a deep ecologist, and has an activist, and has for really a generation inspired a way of being in the world that takes seriously our interdependence, takes seriously the fact that it's hard to have hope looking at the climate crisis, but also that there is a way of living that cultivates a connectedness and honoring of our pain and ability to see the reality of our days, which can be pretty brutal, but that we're able to actually move forward from it. And that's kind of the whole idea of active hope in a nutshell. And, and today on the podcast, I'm, I'm going to be sharing a message with you all that, that really kind of starts at the beginning of the active hope journey. And it is all about how in the face of challenge, in the face of dreams that seem impossible, what is the beginning place? Now, for me as a queer person, a person of faith, the beginning place for me may not be one that you think of. And I use an example here in the uh, message and quote a, a queer theorist, Josea Esteban-Dinos, that you may not have heard or thought about. And that's okay. One of the things I love about being a part of a community is we get to hear different voices, different voices bringing in different perspectives that can challenge us. Because at the heart of what this message is, is a question of how do you experience, you personally, how do you experience life in a way that makes you feel connected, grateful, part of something, tapping into um, a fuel to make the future distinct and better than the present. And And that's at the heart of what I'm going to be talking about. So as you're listening, I hope you are able to see the corollaries for your life and the ways that you have practices and ways of being that might connect you to desire, to gratitude, to gratefulness, but also to this deep sense of interbeing that is at the heart of life itself. So I think I've introduced that enough. So I'm going to invite us to jump into the message and I'll talk to you after. Our Father, who art in heaven. The scene. We're sitting on the floor of one of our kids' bedrooms. It's bedtime. We are new foster parents, and we are ready, really ready for them to be asleep. Ready to have that moment to just breathe and regroup. And it's time for us to pray. 
Bedtime prayers were not a ritual I grew up with. My parents being non-religious, but the boys from our first foster placement came from a Christian family. And bedtime prayer was a ritual that we were asked by their mother to continue, and we did so gladly, but also a tad uncomfortably. Hallowed be thy name. I'm already stumbling through the prayer. It's not because I don't know the words. I have said them hundreds of times, praying with patients during my time as a hospital chaplain, attending church with friends, but still some of the words stick in my throat. Father, heaven. They're not my words. It's not my faith. Thy kingdom come. By this time, the younger one is repeating the prayer while also slowly inching himself off the bed, head first and backwards. And I can't help but wonder if I'm being pranked by a God that I don't believe in. Despite being a theist, but not believing in a supernatural God, Unitarian Universalism doesn't endorse an idea of heaven or the divine that would ever be expressed in imperial terms like kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The younger one is now on the floor, landing with a thud, startling the older, more stoic one. Divine will being imposed from heaven, I bristle at the idea, but also I kind of get it. In the chaos of our lives, more, more than I'd like to admit, I find myself, I resonate with the feeling of wanting God or something like it to take control of this messy world and right the ship. Faced with the real evils of this time, with the climate collapse, a broken democracy, gun violence and war, or the manifold heartbreaks of daily living, how many of us have not experienced a moment in life when we have felt like there is no way out or that we are trapped with only bad options? How many of us have felt so stuck that it was only as if an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God might have a chance to make it right? Who hasn't thrown up their hands in prayer in prayer, and said, Hello, God, it's me. I don't believe in you, but I need your help. If you could sweep me up and make it all better, I'd be more than grateful. The exacerbated plea of make it better is so human. Give us this day our daily bread. Now we're all fed. I'm grateful although it was always a bit of a struggle with those two at dinner. But looking at the boys, my mind wanders to all the kids around the world who don't know where their next meal will come from. If God gives us our daily bread, does it also mean that God withholds it from those who are hungry? I shake off that question. There's only so much I can process in any one given moment. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I prayed the Lord's Prayer almost every night for five months before the boys went home to their mother. After a week, I didn't have to think which part of the prayer came next. After a month, I started to realize the prayer had become oddly meaningful to me. It wore itself in me despite it representing a theology that was not and will never be mine. Looking over at these two humans that we were doing our best at parenting, and remembering, as we said those words, remembering all of the moments from the past day where I 
I wasn't able to live up to my best or according to my values. And I would say as much to myself as to God, forgive us our trespasses. And I would look at them and think of all the small moments of challenge and hurt they might have caused, all of the moments of challenge and hurt that I experienced in that day, all of the faces, and I would say, we forgive them the trespass against us. The power of this prayer wasn't simply its repetition or the way it catalyzed a retrospective reflectiveness, but the way it shifted how I acted throughout the day. Knowing I would be transported right back to these moments of challenge each evening, asking for forgiveness for them, I may as well, as best I could, muster up the courage to act a little bit differently if I was going to have to ask for forgiveness at the end of the day, as best I could anyways. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, when people ask me what Unitarian Universalism believes about God, I often say, despite a broad diversity of theological conceptions of both God or no God within our faith, ours is a decidedly humanist faith. Because at the end of the day, no matter if you believe in God or not, what unites us all here is that we believe that the buck stops with us that ours are the hands, the hearts, and the minds that are charged with caring for this beautiful, broken planet of ours. It is often why Unitarian Universalists bristle when we hear politicians of all stripes resort to the trope of thoughts and prayers after shootings and other human-caused tragedies. They fold their hands in prayer, surrendering to God the power to stop the violence that rests squarely in their laps shirking the responsibility that should be weighing heavy on their shoulders. They pray to God to deliver us from what they themselves refuse to do. They take up prayer, forgetting the real hope of prayer is not to express hope for a desired outcome, but to pray to have the courage to make strides towards it. Praying that our defenses and cognitive distortions built up generation after generation forged in the delusion of our independence might be lowered so that we might let go of a practiced way of being to allow a love so courageous that it obliterates all division to the point that it feels that we, one to another, the division between us is as trivial as one cell in our body to the next. The real power of prayer is that it can invite us to experience, as the poet Rabindigan Tagore writes, that the same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day runs through the world. Hope need not take the form of some far-off distant savior of any stripe. Hope is like that stream that Tagore spoke about, it can be that primal yearning for more life and less death, a desire uncovered within us, unleashed even to taste a utopic dream, not abstractly, but concretely. That the future that we seek is not only possible, but is actively sought out and enacted, even in part in the present. That as the theologian and philosopher Jose Esteban Munoz writes, we cruise utopia. Here, we arrive at an important juncture. The question 
What is hope? And if we are in a series called Active Hope, what exactly is that? Well, Joanna Macy, the Buddhist teacher, systems thinker, and deep ecologist, whose work has culminated in the practices of active hope, reminds us that hope often has two distinct and often intermixed meanings. The first is synonymous with hopefulness, a state in which we feel or think our preferred outcome seems reasonably likely to happen. We all know this type of hope, the expectant stirrings. But the shadow side of this hope is that it only manifests in the realm of the likely. It's too pragmatic for dreaming, too privileged to withstand the onslaught of reality. The second meaning of hope, though, is about desire. The desire to make something true, despite the evidence, despite the chances of success, rooted firmly in a desire, a yearning, and aliveness that is found now, here, not simply in some future state. A desire that can manifest action in the present. Where hopefulness is dependent on an outcome, desire is kindled by life itself. Where hopefulness can often rely on passivity, waiting for external agents to step in because of the sense of inevitability or, on the flip side, because of the sense of intractability. Desire is more seductive in a good way as it invites us to be an active participant. In the process of moving, we are invited to draw closer to our desires and where we can enact them, making them real. This is active hope. Seeing with honest eyes what is true, noticing those tendrils of desire within us and taking steps towards making it real. Active hope is an ancient but also new practice for us. For it requires a degree of comfort in the discomfort of never quite getting there. Of speaking plainly about what is true of the imperfectibility of life and not picking up our toys and our wealth and going home when it gets hard or when the good feels run out or when we throw up our hands and say, someone else take care of this messy work. For as Jose Esteban Munoz writes, the here and now is a prison house. We must strive in the face of the here and now's totalizing rendering of reality to think and feel a then and a there. In the glimpses, the gestures, the yearnings, the baby steps, the green shoots of hope, then and there we see kindle a desire that enlivens us. Now, for a long time, I had a contact in my phone that simply had the name Bandana Boy. This was not his legal name, which I did know. But I preferred to keep it as Bandana Boy because each time we texted, it reminded me of when we met. It was a hot, sweaty summer night where in the basement of the Masonic Lodge, the Boston Gender Free Contra Dance was in full swing. How many of you have ever been to a contra dance? Yeah, I thought so. We're generally the type to at least have 20% of our people who have been to a contra dance. But if you don't know what contra dancing is, it's a form of folk dancing or line dancing 
And the type is that you end up dancing kind of the same sequence of moves with kind of everyone in the line. I was a young single grad student at the time, and I enjoyed these dances for a few reasons beyond the fact that I liked dancing despite not being great. I liked them first because they were multi-generational. They were a mixture of students to long timers, and the culture was one in which they were very forgiving if you were still learning, which I was pretty much everything. They were also gender free, which meant that your gender didn't determine whether you were leading or following in the dance, which was pretty great. You saw a kind of queerness all over the place. It's lovely. I also loved it because it was a way to have fun and socialize without alcohol being at the center. Now that particular night, I was sitting out of the current dance, catching my breath and trying to cool down enjoying watching the graceful moves of those who seemed to command a fluidity of their bodily extremities that was still beyond me. Still is. When this guy around my age, a purple bandana covering his rather sweaty forehead, caught my eye. I'm not going to lie, he was cute. And a very talented dancer. But it was the intense joy that was on his face that kept my eyes on him. He was flowing. Like that stream of light that Tagore wrote about, it run, ran through his body that night, the way rivers flow, tumbling with grace, the way that sea otters frolic. He signaled queerness in his gesture. It was playful. It was free. It was everything. And all I wanted to do was to be close to that. This desire for closeness, not just to him, but to what he was exuding. Close to what he had already gifted me from afar, this enlivening joy. Now, unlike many Unitarian Universalists, I don't find awe and wonder primarily in nature. I know it's a confession. I find it when I stumble most often into moments of seeing someone in their element or experiences that I call queer joy. And this was both. Now, you may be wondering why exactly I'm telling you this. And we'll get there but we have a little detour first. For this, I actually need your help. So if Elaine and Benjamin will help me set up, I am going to need four volunteers to come up. You're going to be asked to answer one question. That's it. Anyone? Come on up. All right, we got two, three. Got, got, let's do one more. Take a seat. One more person because Elaine, perfect, wonderful. So they're going to have a conversation and we're going to all eavesdrop. Have you all ever eavesdropped before? <laughs> well, one of the good rules of eavesdropping is you kind of have to be quiet and you're doing a great job of that. Well, we're just going to listen in and I'm going to give them instructions and we're just going to listen and notice what goes on for us. All right. All you have to do is repeat the sentence I'm going to give you and finish it. One thing I love about living on Earth is... One thing I love about living on Earth is hugs for my kids. One thing I love about living on Earth 
is all the fantastic energy from nature and people and animals. One thing I love about living on Earth is that there are cats here. One thing I love about living on Earth is all the people that I get to know. One thing I love about living on Earth is being wrong. Do that again. That was great. Let's do it again. When I scratch my dog's ears and he groans. Um, one thing I love about living on Earth is being in water and swimming in it and just floating in it. Um, one thing I love about living on Earth is that there are pretty sunsets sometimes. That I can have meaningful relationships with people. Being on Earth for those moments when you hear someone talking about a book like Jose Munoz and you know you have that book in your backpack right now. We're going to do it one more time. When you're outdoors in the summertime and it's dark but the air is warm. Uh, the feeling of being really cold, but knowing you're safe enough to get warm again soon. One thing I love about uh, being on Earth is playing with my son. Um, being able to do random stuff like this. Something I love about being on Earth is the smell of fallen leaves as the as the change in weather starts to become crisp. I want you all to notice how you're feeling right now. All of the sensations in your body, emotions may be stirring. I see a lot of you are smiling. All right. We'll come back to it, but let's think. So I promised I'd tell you why I told you about Bandana Boy. In watching him dance, there was just this beautiful blend of energy, this masculine energy, this feminine gesture, dancing with people of all genders that just struck me. I anticipated dancing with him, desired it even, and it was a fantasy, not idle or utopian, but concrete in the sense that I experienced within myself this unfolding, this, limber, this limbering, this fluttering in simply taking in his joy and freedom and the promise of delight. It would have been enough to stay in that desire 
for the desire embodied already a delight and an awe, a power of gratitude that draws and dares us forward. A gratitude for life that simply whispers kindredness. Joanna Macy writes that gratitude is the beginning place for us if we are to meet the challenges of our time. And not simply an abstract gratitude, theoretical and unfeeling, but an embodied gratitude where we truly feel the connectedness, the union, the streams of life flowing through us and all life that is not metaphysical, supernatural, but elemental. The letting of our bodies experiencing that gratitude unlocks not only that experience of connectedness, seeing the light within us mirroring the life around us, but it builds our capacity to see in the hardest times the way life continues to resist, be beautiful, and sets the table for love even when we want to or have even given up. We need those experiences to wash over us, to reset our neurobiology, to help rebuild the trust that we have lost in ourselves and each other and this world, a trust that is needed for the active work ahead. That's why I love that, that exercise that Joanna Macy has about answering those questions in that fishbowl. Because I am pretty sure that all of you, even as you were just listening to what they were loving, noticed something shift in you, a sense of connectedness to this life, a little enlivenment maybe. When I think back to the eventual moments of dancing with Bandana Boy, Justin is his name, by the way. He tried to teach me how to waltz, and I delighted in stumbling over, falling twice, as we zigzagged around the dance floor. I can't help but think of another dance in Boston, this one not on the dance floor, but in the streets, zigzagging from the Boston Common to the police detention center in Southie. This dance was a protest, a mass march of 100,000 people in the streets after the killing of Eric Gardner, an unarmed black man killed for selling cigarettes without a license. 100,000 people chanting, marching, moving as one, demanding that racism and violent policing, even policing and prisons themselves, be left in the past. A seemingly utopian vision, but dancing with them in that warm July evening, I was overcome with the feeling and almost out-of-body experience a feeling like this mass assortment of humans was just one organism that like this planet we are on, we all have a part, but we are just cells in its grand function, united in purpose, desiring being a part of life, desiring being a part of something far greater than any of us alone. Now that moment didn't delude me, that a feeling or an ecstatic moment like that was enough to change the world, but on the other hand, love is always a more potent power than a blind optimism, and a hope embodied together, a desire and a yearning that roots us in joy and delight. Well, that is fuel. Fuel for dreams beyond what we think is possible. For a love that calls us to be part in this great world. Amen. And blessed be. It can be hard to live in this life when we feel hopeless, but it can be equally as challenging to live in this life trying to be optimistic, right? And so part of the work of active hope 
is how do we find a way forward that feels deeply hopeful, but also doesn't lie to us, right? I hope you've enjoyed this message. It's given you a little father. I have a little bit of homework for you all. If you'll forgive me, I know. And the homework is this. As you go throughout your day, I would love you to notice where you see tendrils of desire. The type of desire that brings you deeper into life itself. The type of desire that is an experience of something, not just an absence of something. And trust those moments that might even be ecstatic or tiny as sources of deep gratitude that connects you to life. And that that experience of life coming over you is transformative. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.